Hello and welcome. I'm Sophie Kilvert and today I'm joined by Nick Bailey. Nick is a horticulturalist and garden designer. He's a familiar face on gardening programmes on TV uh, and as well as writing a number of columns for gardening magazines, he's also the author of three books. He spent seven years at London's Physic Garden as the head gardener, redesigning the gardens there and diversifying the planting. Now, as many of us are finding ourselves with a little bit more time to spend in our gardens and with that lovely weather we had in April as well, uh, we've also got time to work on them. So we thought it would be a great idea to get some tips from the best about how we can make the most of this opportunity. Now, Nick, obviously all gardens are different and to ask the sort of jobs that we should be doing now is probably too wide a question. But I think if we can get a few hints and tips from you, that would be really, really useful. So to start with, can we ask what's great to grow in May, both from an ornamental side and also a more practical side? What should people be concentrating on at the moment? Well, hi, Sophie. Hi, everybody. Um, there's so many things you can start in May. I mean, it's an exciting, exciting month because it's just that transition time of moving from spring to summer. And so there's an awful lot in terms of edibles that you can get going at that time of year. So whether that's uh, getting hold of strawberry plants and getting those into the ground or whether that's sowing plants yourself. So a lot of the more tender vegetables, things like runner beans, which come from South America and things like a lot of the cucurbits. So the likes of squash and courgette and, uh, and those, those sort of uh, those sort of veg are absolutely ideal to sow in May. They don't like the cooler spring weathers. So if you sow them then, they will have popped up sort of by the end of the month or so. Uh, by June, they'll be growing away out in the garden and by July, you'll be having your first harvest. So that's a great thing to, to start then. Ornamentally, of course, we are blessed with an incredible range of nurseries in the UK. I dare say the, the most diverse in the world. So there's all sorts of things you can get hold of and things have shifted over the years. It's seasonality in terms of sourcing plants isn't as important as it used to be. You can get hold of nearly everything year round. The only sort of challenge comes is if you buy, let's say, a, you know, a very large plant or large tree and put it in the ground in May. Obviously, you've got more challenges in terms of in terms of watering, but there's absolutely everything you can get started. The lovely thing as well is there are lots of hardy annuals that you can sow directly into the garden. And over the last few years, the idea of uh, man-made meadows has become very fashionable. And so there are some fantastic seed mixes you can get hold of easily online. If you've got a, uh, an area of rough ground or fairly depleted ground, you can break up the surface, turn it into a fine tilth, and sow the meadow directly into it. Now, there's several well-known mixes that you'll be able to access online. And what's extraordinary about them is if you go for a long flowering mix, you'll sow in May, it will start to come into bloom in June, and then you'll find a succession of flowers that will take you all the way through until October. So it's a very, very quick win uh, to sow directly into the soil, keep it moist until it germinates, and then it does its own thing. And what's so lovely about that as well, of course, is you're providing fantastic provision for pollinators. Mm. And if you're more fastidious than that, if you if you want to make sure that your lawn is, is tip top and green and, and looking good rather than going down the, the wild flower route, what would you do at the moment to, to make sure that you're you've got that bowling green lawn if, if that's the way you're inclined? Sure, well turf is back into full swing having had its uh, its winter rest. So you can really bolster it with a feed. So that needs to be a higher nitrogen feed to get the grass really, really greened up. You can also use treatments at this time of year to get rid of moss. 
and then a few other additional benefits. Uh, if you've got time and energy, you can scarify the lawn, which is effectively about taking out all of the old debris at the base of the grass. So that's all the sort of dead clippings and, uh, and rubbish that builds up there. And so a scarifier is, it looks a bit like a lawnmower, but it basically just slices through and churns up the most incredible amount of stuff that you can't believe is living under your lawn. You then rake it off and it means both that water and nutrients can penetrate into the soil better. It also partially aerates the soil as well. And it does something quite magical, which is causing the roots to tiller. In other words, if you slice through the roots of a lot of turf species, it will cause them to produce new shoots and to become thicker. So that will increase the density of the sward and by putting nitrogen on, you'll also green it up as well. And of course, it's this time of year that you can drop down your cut, the final notch, so get the lawn as short as possible. Of course, if the temperatures start to crank up again, it's worth elevating it one or two notches up the mower. Of course, you'll remember that, uh, that iconic shot of Hyde Park a few years ago, uh, looking somewhat like the Kruger Park in South Africa, because the grass had uh, not been irrigated and uh, it will very quickly disappear. So if that does start to happen in summer, of course, you can irrigate. But the great thing about turf species is they're incredibly resilient. So if all the grass burns off on the surface, those roots underground will last for months and months and months. Once the rain returns, they'll pop back up again and you'll have a lawn. Perfect. And for those of us who maybe aren't blessed with, with such a large outside space and, and don't have the, the opportunity to have a lawn or, or a meadow, um, in terms of pot plants, what should we be doing? If we've got a terrace that we want to at least add some colour to, are there any recommendations that you have there? Absolutely. I mean, the first, the first rule, if you're dealing with a very small space, say a, a courtyard, uh, a small back garden, um, uh, small spaces generally, the first rule is to put something, and it does seem counterintuitive, but is to put something really big into there. So lots and lots of tiny little pots can end up feeling messy and confusing. But if you start with one large container, say you put in a, a tree, an olive, for example, and then plant around the base of it, and then you could have five or ten pots that cluster around that. But making that one big statement really does make a difference. And you start to get this sort of layering effect, which breaks up the space. And it makes the space feel bigger, ultimately. Now, in terms of species, I would tend to go for resilient things that will keep on blooming. Now, of course, the bedding industry has had some challenges this year. That's the, uh, the sort of annual plants that we normally rely on for colour through the summer. And they're not as available as they, they have been in the past. But of course, there are some fantastic herbaceous perennials, in other words, plants which return year after year, which can do an amazing job through summer. The second book I wrote is called 365 Days of Colour, and it's all about getting year-round colour. And in there, I've produced multiple lists of different plants that just keep delivering the goods through the season. So a few good examples of that would be plants like Geranium Roseanne. That has a beautiful blue cup-shaped flower, which is white at the centre and with sort of burgundy venation that runs into that white. It's a ground covering plant, so it's the sort of thing you could put in a large pot and it would tumble over the edges, or you could even put it into a window box or something similar. And what's superb about it is it will come into flower in May, June time, and it flowers all the way up to November. It's absolutely relentless. And it's brilliant for pollinators as well. They absolutely love it. And there's a few other plants that have that same sort of quality to them. There's one of the perennial wallflowers. It's called Arisimum bowls mauve. And it 
literally flowers 365 days of the year. Now, it'll only do that for about two years before it flowers itself to death. But uh, it's a superb plant and it will just keep going. So it's a great replacement for bedding. And then a plant I chanced upon three or four years ago. Most extraordinary thing. It's, uh, it's related to Lavatera. So it's in the hibiscus family of, of plants. It actually comes from South Africa, from the Cape floral region. It's called Aristodontia alreo. And it produces a shrub up to about two metres tall. It has a pink cup-shaped flower with a purple blotch at the base. And again, it's one of those extraordinary plants that flowers for 365 days of the year. So on a small terrace, having a skinny shrub like that that flowers relentlessly will give you that sure supply of non-stop colour. Mm, that would be lovely to, to look out on, I imagine. And uh, I mean, assuming that we're not going to be blessed with beautiful weather all summer, the fact that people are around their houses a lot more, I think attention as well turns to what we can put inside and what we can have inside our space to A, liven things up, but also see if there's a way to, to help improve the air quality with plants as well. Um, is there anything particular that we should be looking out for in terms of what we should have inside our houses? Yeah, I mean, there's a few, you know, really, really useful tropical. Of course, the, the vast majority of house plants are tropical plants. That's why they, they need to be indoors. So one of the absolute classics is mother-in-law's tongue. Of course, it has those upright sword-like um, leaves. Uh, there's one called cylindrica as well, which has inevitably cylindrical leaves. And they're extraordinary in terms of their capacity to soak up pollutants and to produce oxygen. What's also really handy is that they can take all sorts of abuse. So if you get uh, if you forget to water them for two months, they will forgive you entirely. There's also a lovely thing, uh, African plant called Zamiococcus, and that is deemed to be the highest oxygen producer of all indoor plants that you can grow. Now it's quite a plain-looking plant, but again, it's it's got a sort of a succulent quality to it, very thick, glossy, leathery leaves. Um, the plant I've got in my house is yet to flower and it's five years old. So it's all about just producing oxygen and bringing that greenness into into the home. It's very easy to look after. And similarly to the mother-in-law's tongue, it will take unbelievable amounts of use. It will grow in full sun. It will grow in part shade. It will grow in nearly full shade. And again, you can forget to water it for a couple of months and it will keep on looking good. But of course, the easiest win of all, if you're looking for a bit of instant colour, Rather than going out and buying a bunch of flowers that will maybe last for a week, I'd always advocate getting hold of a Phalaenopsis, one of the moth orchids. And of course, they come with two or three spikes of blooms on them, which will each last for two or three months. And once they've done that thing, uh, done their thing and, uh, and, and flowered for you, you then trace back down the stem and feel for a little bubble on the side of the stem. And you'll see this little sheath that covers it. And that's a new flowering stem. So if you prune down to just above that, just with a pair of secateurs or scissors, snip above that. Most people tend to think that these uh, these moth orchids just die once they once they've had their first flush of flower. But if you do that little bit of pruning, they will reflower for you, and you'll get another two or three months of colour. Oh, that's fantastic. Because yes, I think I'm probably one of those who, once the initial blooms go, you sort of think that well, that's it. Um, but that sounds a much more sustainable way to do it rather than, than throwing out a, a new bunch of flowers every every few weeks. And once yeah. you have got 
these plants going and and I think one one thing that people are concerned about particularly outside plants obviously um, is the best way to deal with certain pests now everyone's obviously familiar with with the standards of slugs and snails and working out actually how to humanely and environmentally friendly keep them away from their plants what would you say to that Okay, so there are there are all sorts of techniques, but I must must tell you, 30 years in the biz, and I'm yet to use a, a slug pellet. Um, they're pretty dreadful things. There are claims by various different companies that uh, that they won't kill uh, won't kill mammals if they eat them, but um, there's basically zero evidence to back that up. So I always tend to go down a much more organic route. So at the most basic level, if you're deciding that, uh, that or if you realize that you've got a problem with slugs and snails in the garden first thing to do is damp evenings just go out there with a torch and particularly around the plants that you know are likely to be more vulnerable things that are just emerging they tend to love brassicas as well so that's cabbages and cauliflowers and all those sort of things so just go out with a torch and have a look around you can gather all the uh, gather all the slugs together into a bucket uh, and then dispose of them as you wish I, uh, I used to uh, have a gardener on my on my team years ago who was very, very happy to go and pick up all the slugs and snails. Uh, but being Buddhist, she didn't want to kill them. So she would bring them to me and say, uh, now, I have no idea what you're going to do with these, but here is a bucket of slugs and snails. <laughs> and, um, uh, and anyway, so uh, my, my uh, preferred option was just to stamp on them. So it's all a bit gruesome. Um, but the cleaner ways that you can deal with it, beer traps are fantastic. So if you've got some nasty beer that uh, somebody bought to a dinner party five years ago and it's back <laughs> in the back of the cupboard, um, put that into a, a small plastic cup, um, sink it into the soil. So there's just a little bit of a rim of the cup sticking up and put it by your most vulnerable plants. And you'll be amazed when you come back in the morning, you'll find that pot is full of slugs and snails that have drunk themselves to death. They're big um, fans of the beer. And, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then drowned, of course, uh, in, their, in their beer. And uh, the other thing you can do, and I think this is one of the best possible methods, it's the most natural thing you can do, is to get hold of nematodes. So you can have a look online if you just type in that term, um, nematodes or beneficial insects, and you'll find multiple companies supply them. So if you order nematodes, what you'll find arrives is a bag of what appears to be dust, but in fact, what's in there are millions and millions of these tiny, tiny little parasitic worms. And they have a fairly gruesome way of dispensing of the, uh, the slugs and snails. We perhaps shouldn't go into that today, but uh, if you pour that uh, onto your soil, in other words, you mix that powder in a watering can, Pour it onto areas that you know are more vulnerable. The nematodes will get to work and they will knock back your populations of slugs and snails. The other thing to be aware of is people are often sort of misled into thinking it's those big sort of tiger slugs or the fat black slugs that are doing all the damage. In actual fact, it's the tiny slugs, the slugs that are about the size of your fingernail, the little black ones. They are the worst. They're the ones that tend to munch through the most leaves. So they're the ones to look out for. They're the ones to target. But uh, with that three-pronged approach, you st should stand a good chance of keeping them under control. Fantastic. And then people will have that beautiful garden that they can enjoy the, the colour and obviously their, their lovely lawn. And, and I think a lot of people are realising that there are real benefits to spending time outside, getting dirty and, and being in what they might consider a, a restful and, and peaceful place, particularly at stressful times at the moment. Um, 
do gardens offer that for you? Do you find the mental health benefits fulfilling? I mean, there's a there's a certain <laughs> there's a certain irony in that for me because as a as a professional gardener, um, the garden is my workplace, so uh, mm. it intrinsically comes with rather a lot of stress. However, that's that sort of building gardens for for clients and the like. However, my own garden is is a place of solace. I mean, I'm developing it at the moment, but it's uh, I think it's vitally important. I think we it's not just the sort of aspect of being outside or being around nature it's it's actually sort of engaging with that growth process and remembering that we are animals and we are part of this planet and just just touching the soil i think is one of the most sort of soulful experiences you can you can possibly have i think it's reinvigorating i've just written a, a column recently actually about the, the health benefits of gardening and Something my sister advocated to me years ago was this sort of semi-meditation technique, but I do it daily in my garden now. And it's as simple as uh, sitting in a quiet corner, enclave, away from anybody else, closing your eyes and initially taking just three minutes, two or three minutes, just to listen, just to remove all thoughts from your head and just listen to everything that's going on, to hear the birds, insects buzzing around, all of those sort of glorious uh, tones that come out of the garden. Then stop for a second and breathe again and then spend another two or three minutes just taking in the smells. Keep your eyes closed, but take in the smells of the garden. Now, whether that's an obvious thing like uh, like like flowers or um, maybe it's just the water drying on stone, that very particular smell you get after rain, but just imbibing all of those odours. Then the next thing is to think for another three minutes. Um, just about what you're feeling, the wind against your face, maybe the, the grass, maybe you're sat on the grass and you can feel that with your hands. And you can see what I'm saying here, it's basically just foc focusing each one of your senses one by one on exactly what's happening around you there and then. And I think we're all so guilty of having our heads in the future and in the past and very often not being in the present. And just an exercise like that in your garden, I think, can bring you very much sort of back down to earth and uh, and sort of bring you in touch with with the place really in in all its aspects i think people at the moment are almost needing that they need some they need to be grounded a little bit more and we actually have the opportunity to to live in the present at the moment because we effectively we can't focus on the next big thing because of the uncertainty we don't know what that's going to be so i yeah, think that's absolutely. that's really good advice and there's, and obviously, there's something about the continuity of nature, you know, irrespective of what's going on in the world, spring has still happened. You know, summer mm -hmm. is about to happen. Nature, nature will, will endure. And talking about, I mean, what's going on at the moment, um, when we look at garden centres and, and nurseries and, and plant producers, I think um, I think that's an interesting thing I'd to talk about. I mean, the value of lost plant cells in the UK is estimated to be nearly 700 million by the end of June. Possibly if the lockdown continues, it could go up to 1.2 billion pounds by the end of December. And obviously for many growers, uh, those plants that they've produced, they probably planted two or three years ago. And a lot of that will now have to be written off and the loss of income that comes from that what long-term impact do you think that this will have on the, on the industry? I mean, it's it's split in a number of in a number of different ways because there's certain parts of the industry which are booming un unbelievably. So, for example, I went onto a, a well-known uh, website last week for uh, it's a seed supplier, and I've never seen this in my life. But there was a queue to get onto the website. 
and had to wait up to an hour and a half just to get onto the website. Wow. And so I'm aware, talking to colleagues across industry, that the seed houses um, are absolutely overwhelmed and have never had so much business ever because, of course, people are at home and focused on their uh, focused on their gardens. So that side of things is going extraordinarily well. Equally, um, herbaceous and shrubby plants. Uh, again, I am struggling in a professional capacity to get hold of plants now because people have gone absolutely mad. And every online uh, supplier has been overwhelmed with, with requests and with orders. So essentially, the, um, the side of the industry that deals with long-term plants, i.e. trees, shrubs, perennials, to my reading, and of course seeds as well, seems to be doing extremely well. Mm. And I think it will do even better off the back of this. I mean, it's very interesting, the, the, the show that I work on with the BBC, the audience figures have gone up monumentally. Uh, and of course, that's because people are at home, because people are thinking about their gardens, which they, they may never have done before. And so that, of course, is going to, I think, deliver to the industry a whole new set of com uh, customers once we've passed this, this difficult situation we're in. Where the problem that you alluded to lies, unfortunately, is with bedding plants. So that's annual plants. Uh, in other words, those plants that just live for a single season. So things like uh, petunias, uh, bidens, uh, snapdragons, those kind of things that, um, that people tend to use for short-term display. And they've been produced on a, on a massive scale as ever for the UK, and there's gonna be a lot of stock wastage. Um, now, I'd never claim to be a, a, a zeitgeister, but I do wonder if a more future-proof model for some of these companies would be to move more into the herbaceous uh, stock lines. Quite simply that that stock can hold and be sold over two or three years, whereas annuals uh, have about a, a six-week, possibly to two-month window that, that they can be sold in. And after that, they're waste. They're, they're no good. Of course, they won't continue into the next year, and they start to look very sad in in, uh, in plastic containers. So that's that's where the issue lies. So what I would say generally is to people, of course, you can get hold of bedding plants. Do buy them by means fair and foul, but but it's a it's a logistics issue essentially for these big growers getting them out to, of course, the main places they sell through were garden centres, nurseries, DIY sheds, and the big supermarkets. And those logistics just simply aren't working this this year. So I think uh, um, do what you can. But what's um, what's what's surprising is that you if you search around, you can still pretty easily get hold of shrubs, perennials. And if you're prepared to wait in a bit of a queue, lots and lots of seeds. Now, this week, it was due to be the wonderful Chelsea Flower Show. And I think many of those listening would have been looking forward to attending. Um, what's planned instead? What, what will you be doing this week in, instead of that? Okay, well, I was looking forward to attending too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm very sad not to be. I've been there every year for the last 20 years. So I started out as a, as a student helping, helping build gardens. Uh, then I covered it for uh, the press for a few, few years. Then I ended up doing my own garden in 2016 on Main Avenue. Uh, and then ever since then, I've been covering it for the last four years for, for TV. And so I'm really sad not to be a part of it mm. because for me, it's it's the pinnacle of global horticulture. You know, there is nothing bigger or better. And believe me, I've been to the biggest flower shows around the world. Nothing is a patch on, on Chelsea Flower Show. So it brings together two of the things that I think 
we duly can be incredibly proud of in Britain. I think we have the best horticulture industry in the world, bar none. Uh, and I also think we're the, the best media producers in the world as well. I think we produce the best, uh, the best television and the like. So Chelsea really is the culmination of the best TV with the best garden show. So everybody, of course, is going to be sad that it's uh, that it's not happening this season. But BBC and the RHS are stepping up. So the RHS have all sorts of online content throughout Chelsea Week, all sorts of things you can interact with. I believe there's going to be talks and lectures that you'll be able to get hold of online. And then again, to my understanding, the BBC are going to be running a week of programmes, almost the same volume of content that they produce during conventional Chelsea Flower Show week. So it's about 20 hours of TV, as I understand it. And it's going to be a mix of the best of the best of historic gardens over the last 10 years that have appeared at Chelsea Flower Show. And all of us regular presenters will be sort of doing the links between the uh, uh, between the different gardens uh, and the walk arounds and the stands and the like. So it will feel fresh and new and hopefully remind viewers of some of those fantastic gardens, which of course only last for a fleeting moment. You know, they're there for a week and they're gone. So uh, I think it'd be lovely to revisit some of the some of the best gardens of the last decade. And if people enjoy that and want to consume more gardening content, um, where would you point them? Would you recommend any any other podcasts or or anything online that you think people should should be listening to and should be watching? So there's there's all sorts of things actually. It's it's growing brilliantly. So there's a, there's a great podcast called Fresh from the Pod. Uh, excuse the pun, and um, that's Tamsin Westhorpe, and she uh, she interviews uh, gardeners great and good, and me, um, and um, and so you'll find some brilliant uh, interviews on there. They're about forty minutes long, and so they're about people's sort of careers in in horticulture, but with all sorts of hints and tips and ideas on the way. If you're um, if you're more of a visual person, then Instagram and Instagram Live is absolutely full of horticultural content at the moment. Of course, all us gardeners are, are trapped at home and, uh, and several who have a, a media profile are taking advantage of that to share some of their knowledge. So, for example, if you look on Instagram Live, Jane Perone is doing a fantastic daily podcast on really sort of rare and unusual houseplants and how to care for them. They're all from her private collection. And so that's uh, and, and she just presents it in a really jolly, uplifting way, which is which is great. And then, of course, Dermot Gavin, the great Irish garden designer, is doing an Instagram live feed every day with different guests. So you can log on to that. And again, a lot of that is is practical. So you'll have demonstrations and the like various different things happening and then lots of inspiring ideas from from Dermot. And you'll find if you go on to those two feeds, you will get more and more things appearing on your menu with uh, lots of horticultural content. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, thank you ever so much for your time today, Nick. I think that's been enlightening. I'm probably off to, to go and sort my small little garden out, as, as it is. With something very big in the middle of it, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. A nice big tree, I think, would be, would be just the ticket. But no, I really appreciate the time. Um, and thank you very much for, for all the recommendations. That's been great. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you. Please note... This audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.